The scripture reading is from John 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together and with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Blessing on our time together now. Blessing on your word. Speak to each of our hearts. You know what we need to hear. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to talk uh, just very briefly about um, the aesthetics of slides. Does that sound a good topic? Uh, so, like, for, oh my goodness, nothing's up there. So, you see, isn't it better when it actually is up there? Ooh, you see? Aesthetic of a slide, even existing. Come thou fount of a blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. So many times you think, you know, it's actually even more effective to put a backing behind it. Because when you have it like that now, you are lifted, you know, out of this mundane place into a more, you know, powerful, otherworldly place, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And we are, you know, transported out of this place into this, you know, larger, deeper place. But some people think actually far more appropriate would be backings like this. You know, like a doctor's office or, a, um, or an office setting. I mean, think about it. Prone to launder, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Is, not the, is this not the place where we feel a little bit more temptation? To leave the God I love, where my heart is prone to wander? It's not while I'm sitting going in the beautiful, you know, uh, visual escape. And many people actually believe it's not simply that, um, that these are the kind of, you know, whether you have, whatever you want to have for slide backings, it's not that important. But the point is that this is actually where we should be thinking about our faith being and being played out. And one of the big differences is that, our, say, when you come to church, it's not that you're trying to leave the world. It's actually that you're being prepared to be in the world and to be sent into the world. But essentially the truths that we're singing about and the praises we're saying here and the things we're saying now are so that we can be sent forth as God's people into the world. Um, and uh, that may mean that we're having slides like this, but Bethany, please don't feel pressured to put slides as aesthetically beautiful as those <laughs> behind in service. But the idea is that we're supposed to be people who are thinking in terms of being sent forth. You know, we're going through the fall and the different distinctives of the Evangelical Covenant Church, our new denomination, finding out what they're like. And uh, we, they say if you want to understand them, their ethos, think in these four ways. Biblical, devotional, missional, and connectional. And these are really the distinctives of the Evangelical Covenant Church. You know, they, there's a, where, some, where some churches might be, have highly uh, defined doctrinal statements, the ECC actually 
tries to make it more minimal down to what we really, what are the, what's the heart of what we believe, that they actually want to have these directions going, this is what we want to see happening in churches. And we're not trying to nail down this very specific doctrine, but we're trying to be a people who are, you know, biblical, devotional, connectional, and missional. What does that mean? Biblical, committed to the word of God. Devotional, committed to intimacy with God. Missional, committed to the work of God. And connectional, committed to the family of God. And we're going to be talking about these different ones in the fall. We talked about biblical a couple weeks. Today we're talking more about missional. You know, what, is it, what does it mean to be a, a church on a mission? And um, it's a, this is a, a large idea. And it's actually the word missional, by the way, you can tell is a play off of the word. It's only about 20 years old, probably. And it's a play off the word mission. So they would have said churches traditionally would say, you know, mission fields are other places in the world. We send missionaries from here to go to these other places to do the work. The church's role is to pray and support them, and that's what we do. And they say, no, actually, we are living in mission fields. We are to be missionaries. We are to be sent into this area. We want to be churches that are missional themselves. And so I'm going to talk about one of the texts, I think, which depicts this really uh, beautifully today, John 20. And talk about what, what are the... Um, and what we're going to, John 20 is a fascinating passage at the end of it, from 19 to 23. And we're going to talk about some of the things it says there. Make some observations, because it has a, very, a lot of interesting different things. Then talk more about what is it getting at here? What's it really mean? And what does that imply about our church uh, you know, being missional? What does it tell us? So what does it say? What's it mean? And what does it mean for us as a missional church? From John chapter 20. 19 to 23. So let's just talk about some of the things that are there initially, because there are a lot of interesting little pieces of this text. It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together. By the way, the first day of the week here is, does anyone know where we, what our setting is for John 20? This is when Jesus rose from the dead. Started John 20, we have the, the resurrection account, and then right after that initial resurrection account in John, we have this thing where he comes to his disciples. And, and, it's, and catch that phrase, first day of the week. It's a very intentional phrase. If you remember in, in the Gospel of John, right, where does he start the entire Gospel? Um, in the beginning was the Word. And he talks about days throughout it, throughout the whole thing. We're, and if you understand John as opposed to Luke, Luke says, I carefully have recorded all the things that have happened so you know exactly what happened in his life. That is not what John does. John says, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff I'm not putting here. But this stuff I'm including that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing in him you may have life in his name. And he's recorded and put it together in a very different structure. So it's good to catch his words and to see the structural points for John. First day of the week, and it says when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, says the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. And so he's in, they're, they're locked in a room. It's right after the resurrection, and they're scared, and the doors are locked. No one can come in. Now, that phrase, door, is there, right? right? One of the things John does is he takes these phrases and plops them all throughout his gospel, and then they kind of come to the fullness. Remember the word door earlier? It gets translated in different ways in John, and that actually makes you conf- get confused by it. But remember, it says here, Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate. Same word. I am the door. The other one could be gate. I am the door for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. I am the door. 
Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come and go and find pasture. Now, interesting, here it is. So now there, that the door is locked. And what does Jesus do? Comes, stands right among them. It's like this locked door is meaningless. You know, I come right there. I am the door. And it's almost fulfilled right before them. Now, and Jesus come and stood among them. Now, one thing I want to talk about this is, what happens when you see something like this? You see how Jesus appears in the midst of them, right? This is also resurrection's glorified body. He's no longer essentially before when he was kind of in the world, more in the flesh, pre-resurrection. He tended to obey more what we consider laws of nature uh, to an extent. The miracles he didn't. But we see texts like this, and what I hear from people oftentimes is they look at texts like this and they go, you know, this, I struggle with seeing this and seeing accounts of the resurrection and the other miracles. It makes me not really believe the Bible. Or how can he believe this stuff? And I actually think statements like this, far from taking credibility away from the story, actually, if you really think about them, add credibility. Think, why do I think that? And this is a bit of an aside. It's a bit of a rabbit trail, more like an elephant trail, because <laughs> I find it very interesting. So um, it'll be a two-part. Rabbit trail's one part. Elephant trail's two parts. So rabbit trail, let me give you two quick reasons. One, number one, on a very brief idea, the miraculous is critical to the, to the integrity of the story of the scriptures, right? Because what is the scripture claiming to be? Revelation from the creator to us, the one who made all things, who knows all things, has entered into the world and revealed himself to us and even stepped into the world in the person of Jesus. That is, says, that is extraordinary. And if everything he did was simply ordinary or was simply explainable or simply normal, there'd be no concept that the miraculous actually entered. It'd be a story that would lack integrity or proof. It, he, you know, God needed to do the extraordinary to bring signs that the extraordinary has happened. That the creator has entered the world. He has to have a rule over creation, in a sense. He has to break the laws of nature. It needs that. So far from taking away credibility, it, their story and the claim requires a sign of sorts. But even beyond that, this particular one, where he appears to them, you know, I think that's actually far less inconceivable as you might think. Um, Has anyone ever known the story Flatlanders? You know, it it conceives of a story where people live on two dimensions, you know, like on a flat land. And just to talk dimensionally for a moment, um, you know, one dimension's a line, two dimensions a plane three dimensions, you know, a cube like this. Now, the idea is what happens if a three-dimensional creature encounters a two-dimensional one? What would happen? You know, essentially, the three-dimensional creature can actually enter into it. If you think about it, you could be, um, the three-dimensional creature can be infinitely close to the two-dimensional one, and the two-dimensional one would never be aware of his presence, right? The three-dimensional one knows he's there, two-dimensional one can't see him, and he could actually enter the two-dimensional world and leave it anytime he wants. Enter it out. When he enters it, they see him, but they see him as a two-dimensional creature, not as he actually is, and he can leave it. All it would take there is one more dimension to be able to do it. And so actually for Jesus to simply enter into our dimensional existence and out of our dimensional existence is not actually as crazy as you might imagine. Or that there are like angels or demons living essentially a different dimensional idea. Now, you may think, well, gosh, that seems crazy. Physicists today, right? 
Physicists today are, are imagining, when they, when they see what's happening in the universe, what are they suggesting? Superstring theory? You know, they, they're, they're theoretically positing 10 dimensions. Keep in mind, time's a dimension. We live in five, four dimensions, right? Three dimensions of thing, one dimension of time. And, they, and uh, so string theory, right, assumes we live in a universe with at least 10 dimensions. I like what Stephen Hawking said. The idea of 10 dimensions may sound, I can't read this, may sound exciting, but they would cause real problems if you forget where you parked your car. Um, you know, but I mean, all, all that to say, um, it's not that, that, that physicists today are observing that there's actually a lot more dimensions in operation than we are. The idea that, you know, Jesus, the Lord of those dimensions, could enter into our dimensional space and out of it is not that hard. In fact, ironically, some people, would, I know people who have been actually amazed at the scripture, some of these and physicists who go, wow, the, the Bible's actually describing a dimensional world that wasn't within the science of the people at the time. So either they had to, either, you know, God who the, the, is describing the reality as it is in this dimensional world, or they just got really lucky in their guesses, you know. So I actually, again, just think, anyway, it doesn't prove anything, and it's an elephant trail, I apologize for that. It's something I find interesting, and I hope, you know, so I decided I'll just tell you, since I found it interesting. And, uh, and it lends credibility to me. That the Bible describes, uh, you know, three dimensions, even time, right? Time travel, all this stuff, that's multidimensional ideas. That's all it is. You know, that God can know the beginning from the end simultaneously, could hear all of our prayers at once. All just simple dimensional ideas. Which physicists today actually say that our creation somehow actually contains those. Or may. Black holes, such. Okay. Back to the text. <laughs> <clears throat> So the scripture says, um, there stood among them, Jesus said, peace be with you. You know, it's a very common greeting, both in modern Hebrew and in modern Arabic. You know, shalom aleichem. And, uh, but what's interesting, it seems like more than a greeting here, doesn't it? Because he says it again. Again, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. When he visits just after this text to the disciples and sees, uh, you know, doubting Thomas, he says, peace be with you. What's he getting at here? And again, this is one of those words that shows up all throughout John. Look where it says here, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. And where are they right now? The disciples are in fear. (laughs) They're afraid. He comes to them right then and says, my peace be to you. There's this peace that's not the way our worldly sense of peace. There's this peace of this other peace, right? And, and the idea of shalom is a sense of wholeness. This wholeness that I come and I give it to you right now. What's he talking about here? And then in the midst of that statement, he says, he shows them his hands inside. Wow. And what's on his hands inside, right? If you remember... With uh, Yeah, the holes. Exactly, Doug. Remember, I, just a little bit later, he says to Thomas, Thomas says to him, lest I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, 
what's so crazy about this is this is his resurrected body. This is his glorified body, but it maintains the wounds. Why? Why does it maintain the wounds? Why aren't they vanished? And then it gets even weirder. I lost my text. There we go. And with that, he breathes on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's a crazy one, huh? He breathes on them. Breathe. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive, they're not forgiven. Wow, that's crazy. So there's a lot of weird things happening in this text. All right, well, good. Let's pray and we'll take off. And uh, <laughs> I'll give you my theory what's going on. So what's it mean? To me, if you want to grab what this text is really getting at, I, I like to start with the breath. When he breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now remember, what is one of the things John does, right? John is pulling you into the rest of all the texts. And he pulls you all the way from the very start of the scripture. At the start of his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. So what's this breathing thing? Anything from Genesis ring a bell? Yeah. Boom, you're in Genesis 2, right? You're in the creation account. Even the idea of the first day. Remember, it says it was evening of the first day. Boom, that sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Evening and morning. The first, I mean, just like all this. So it's, it's, but it's, it's the day after the week, right? The Sabbath day have happened. So now you've just followed the Sabbath day, and you're back on first, a new first day. And you have, um, just remember Genesis 2, Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. So what do you have Jesus doing now on the new first day of creation? He's breathing into them again. Right? He's breathing now the Holy Spirit into him. He's taking people who are dead and making them alive. He's bringing the new creation. Through his death and resurrection, the world has been recreated. And he's entering into it. Right, The ultimate has now entered into the temporal, in a sense. The broken world has been invaded by the new world, the new uh, heavens and the new earth, in Jesus' resurrection. And in the giving of the Holy Spirit, which he breathes on them. So now they're living beings living in the midst of a broken world. Wow, that's crazy, huh? And then you start to go, he shows them his hands and his side. So his hands and his side exist in the new created world. Why? Because the gospel... The death and resurrection is not erased. It's part of the way by which the glory of God has shown himself. God's love and God's commitment to us, God's willingness to lay down, you know, separate, you know, be, uh, the, what he's willing to do to redeem us has been made fully manifest in that. One of the arguments I get sometimes from people is they say, well, I don't understand if God's all powerful and if God, you know, knows all things. Why does it allow the world to be broken? Why all this suffering and all these horrors? Why didn't he just stop it way back then in Genesis 3? He knew what was going to happen. But you understand that the entire plan and all of creation, in many ways, is to, is to glorify God. It means to make God visible, 
to understand who he is. That in the gospel story, we know things about God that couldn't have been manifested any other way. If there is no fall, you'd never know the extent to which God was willing to do to redeem us, would you? It remains theoretical, but if God's looking to manifest himself to creation, the cross and his his love was uniquely manifested. Therefore, in the new creation, you don't erase that. It's not something to be shaming that you want to get rid of. No, every time you look at it, you are reminded this is the extent to which God loves you. This is the extent to which he's willing to lay down his life for you. Never forget that. Even as I breathe on the Holy Spirit now on you, right? And, and new creation has happened. Look, look at who I am and how much I love you and what I'm willing to do for you. It goes, the, you, you never should ever forget about the marks. Every time we think about those marks. When you're saying, as Andrew said, does God even care about me earlier? Does God reject me? You know what he needs to do? Look at the marks. Stands far apart from anything you say or you do or wouldn't do. Look at them. Put your hand in my side. And then the radical line in the midst of it that knits it all together. He shows them his hand, his side. They're overjoyed when they see him. Peace be with you. And it says, then as the Father sent me, I am sending you. That's unbelievable. Sent is one of these words is 25 times, I think, through the Gospel of John. Perhaps more, if you count all things. And you know, Jesus is the one who was sent into the world. And now he says, after the death and resurrection, I now send you. I send you, the, you know, emissaries of the new creation, of the world to come, of people who have been breathed true life into. I send you now out into the world. As, you know, as the Lord, as, as the Father sent Jesus into this lost world to redeem it, now I send you. And I send you with the knowledge of the marks. I send you with the cross into the world, with the gospel. And I don't send you not on your own, right? Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is really the great commission of John. The great commission in Matthew says, you know, go into all the world and I am with you always. This is I am with you always. The Holy Spirit is on you. You are not alone. You've been sent forth. This is what it means to be the missional church, right? This is what a church on a mission is. This is why it's not sending these people to this way off land, that each one of you is being sent from this place into our world, that we are reminded of these things. In that last line, if you forgive Anyone their sins, they're forgiven. I do not forg- you know, if, they're, if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What is that really a statement of? Authority. You have the authority to carry out the things that Jesus does and what God does. That's incredible. And I, I don't think, by the way, that this is as harsh as it sounds. I know this seems almost like a strange, strangely harsh thing. I think it's actually more general and more logical than you think. I, I like what this one commentary said about it. He said, there's no doubt from the context the references to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness. But though this sounds stern and harsh, it's simply the result of the preaching of the gospel, which either brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God or leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel. And so they are left in their sins. 
It's just more the logical thing. that it, It's part of that more radical idea that, um, that God gives us. I mean, that we sit here today, and I believe I can ask for the Lord to visit us and come, and that he'll actually do it. That we can proclaim his word, and we actually have authority to proclaim word from the creator of the universe to you. That we could pray. We could pray in his name, believing he'll hear us and act on it. It's unbelievable authority. But think about it, that's what you must be sent. Think if we were sent without that authority, right? We're called ambassadors for Christ by Paul, right? Imagine if an ambassador was coming out there, but he had absolutely no knowledge at all of who he was being sent from, had no authority at all to speak on their behalf. No, you know, the guys in the United Nations, you're sent there, by the way, but you can't vote on our behalf. No, you're sent as the representative. You're sent with authority, We can actually sit there at the confession and say, we know because of what he says that we are forgiven. We've been given that authority. Well, that's pretty crazy. Authority to heal the sick, to bind up the brokenhearted, to free the prisoners. That's what it means to be missional. That every one of us is sent forth, empowered by the Holy Spirit with the marks of the cross, in the knowledge of his incredible love, in the knowledge of the power he's given to us to carry out his will in the world. That's amazing. That's what it means to be the missional church. And now you might say, what does exactly that mean for us here in this place? We want to continue this discussion. This is a discussion I actually want to have as a church for a, this is a discussion we should always be having. It's a big question. We want to talk about it more in a couple weeks, more specifically about this place and this thing. But right now, I think what we need to do is embrace the idea that you are called that you are called, that you are sent, that you are empowered, that you are loved. You know, that God wants to use you. I mean, in John, says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that wherever, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's authority, isn't it? And he, God's will is that he uses us and bears fruit through us. Amazing, isn't it? My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. What an amazing statement. Let that one sink in. You are meant to bear fruit. And again, it's not something that causes you guilt or fear. He wants you to just believe it and to go forth as his people. He'll do the work. He'll bear fruit through you. You know, Luke, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of a harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That God has all the stuff he wants to do, and as he sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us into the world. People of hope. You know, bringers of hope out into the world. This is really corny, and I'll mention we said one thing we should do. I mean, look at this. The harvest is plentiful. <laughs> Ask Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers in the harvest field, the Newton Harvest Festival. That must be what he's telling us. <laughs> do not use the Bible like that. All right? This is not how you should use the Bible. However, I mean, essentially, what we're, 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 bring, you know, we're bringers of hope there. We sit on a corner at Beacon and Center Street offering hope. 
you know, tangibly showing, you know, God loves you, have a cup of coffee. Seems small, but know that this, this is symbolic of something far greater, of what God wants to give you. And we're sent as his people, sent, hopefully, with each one of us, with the marks of the cross, which is the mark of incredible grace, unconditional love, the power to redeem your life, the victory over death. That's what we bring. And I'll just close with this, something I heard the other night, actually, from uh, one of the leaders on the team. I don't want to, you know, he said it's okay to say his name, but I just let him do that. But um, the reason he said that, he was saying that, I guess, for 10 or 15, maybe 10 years, he's had, like, a, a blood cancer. And, uh, and it was really, they were very concerned that something much worse was happening, or part of that blood cancer. I don't know that, I don't mind the details of the diagnosis, but all I have to say is the test came through and it, and it looked like it, ha- it wasn't the case. And the oncologist was speaking to him about this, you know, this, this good news. And one of the things he had said, though, you know, while he's thankful for that, he said, um, he was talking to the oncologist, but I know that I am going to die, that whatever happens now is temporary, that if it's not this, then it's something else. And, uh, and he's talking about, and I'm, but my hope is not in this. My hope is not in my healing from my cancer. And uh, he says, I'm, you know. And he said that the doctor was somewhat uh, pleased and a little stunned by hearing that. And the doctor responded back, I tell people that they're going to die every day. And he goes, everybody's surprised by it. And he goes, I don't understand it. He goes, I tell an 80-year-old person he's going to die, and he's in shock. And, uh, and he said, you know, and he, he reflected, he goes, I'm ready to take on death. I go, that's hope. And I thought, man, that's what it means to be the bringer of the hope, to sit up to your doctor of oncology, who's the one who's telling the, the curse of the world to a shocked audience, person after person, that you can have hope. That there's victory over death, something far greater than that. I thought, man, that's what it means to be sent into the world. He just sent you out of this little place where we talked about that and sent you into that place where you shared about that hope. We're sent people. We're on a mission from God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you, Lord, and we bless you. And, Lord, help us to embrace your calling, Father, to be a missional people, to believe, to really believe it when you say that you have sent us into the world, that you've breathed the Spirit upon us, that you have forgiven us and you love us beyond anything we can imagine, that you are present here and you will never leave us nor forsake us. We have victory over death. Oh, thank you, Lord. Inspire us to say, what does that look like in our lives? We bless you, Lord. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.